Well, good morning, Sailorville. First of all, this morning, pay no attention to my voice, okay? It's just an allergy, and I'll fight through it. But if, I, if it goes out, oh well. <laughs> if you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, find Ephesians chapter 1, if you would, please. We begin, our, we begin a brand new series titled, Unwrapping God's Masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 1, and then if you've got time, find your way over to Acts chapter 18 and 19, because we're going to be spending the balance of our time after this introduction in that passage, all right? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, notice these are living people, okay, who are in Ephesus and are faithful, and here's a key phrase, in Christ, that is in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very typical introduction from the Apostle Paul, all right? Do you love gifts? Everybody loves gifts, right? I, mean, I do too, and uh, you know, I, I think I've shared this before. I come from a big, I have a big family. I come from a big family. And because I was number eight out of, out of, I was number eight out of nine kids, uh, I was one of the little guys, you know, whenever my family would be coming from the four corners of the earth at Christmas time. And, uh, you know, I mean, we have pictures. We, there's a picture somewhere. I don't, one of our, my siblings has it where there's like, there's a Christmas tree and there's like this much room of the, this, this is how much of the Christmas tree you can see. The presents were stacked that high because they just become and from everywhere. And we just, just totally got into this, but all of us looked forward to my brother Larry's presence. He was my oldest brother, the NFL referee. He always brought the coolest gifts, uh, football helmets and things like that that we'd have. We, my brother and I, we'd be bragging. We had everybody else with their plastic helmets. We had the real NFL kind of helmets, you know, so we were cool. But Christmas was cool, and all the gifts were cool. We all love gifts. And some of the gifts that we get are just, you know, you have them one day and they're broken the next. But some of the gifts that we get in life are so meaningful, they're so precious, they're so overwhelming even, it takes time, even years, to contemplate their value. And take God's salvation, the gift of salvation, which God offers us. Uh, it's called a gift, right? In this very epistle, Ephesians. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that what? There's no boasting about it, all right? I just noticed my shoes untied. That could be a really bad thing if that... Uh, so I'm gonna... So here's the deal. I want you to... This is the gift. If you look at that first verse, while well, I'm tying my shoe here, it says that this gift is in what? In Christ. You see that there? That expression, in Christ, is used by the Apostle Paul in one way or another, wait for it, 164 times in the New Testament. That makes in Christ doctrine like really important. And he uses it 27 times in the book of Ephesians. So we are talking about the greatest gift of all, being in Christ. And we're going to see over the next several weeks the gifts that come out of this gift. 
The the visual, I'm hoping, will be overwhelming to you in your understanding of God. The the book of Ephesians is a prison epistle written at the same time as you wrote Colossians and Philemon. The apostle Paul is in a Roman prison about 10 years after he planted the actual church itself. Now, I want you to think about that. He's in prison. Paul's in prison. He's writing to the Ephesians. He's not writing for sympathy. He's not asking for money. He's not asking for legal representation or the like. He's ministering. He's teaching. He's deepening their faith. He's also instructing them. He's he's warning them. And he's determined not to let the hard circumstances that he's living in to harden him. I have learned in my own life that the harder times, the the prison sentences, so to speak, of my life are the times where my my walk with God deepens. And he'll do the same for you if you respond properly. Right now, my wife, Marilyn, she hasn't been in our church. She hasn't been in church for a month. She's been temporarily sidelined. And yet, the other day, God challenged her to determine that she would not allow this thing that sidelined her from serving. And if you want an antidote for what, you know, what to do when you're in a funk, you have some struggle in your life, the answer isn't to crawl inward. The answer is to figure out a way to serve Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this, again, we're calling this unwrapping God's masterpiece. Now, the masterpiece is the church. And there has never been an era, I'm not just saying this, there has never been an era in which the church is more greatly needed in our world, in our country, in this community than today. There's never been a time where biblical theology of the church was more needed than today. I mean, you just look around, you don't have to look far. There are so many false teachers out there who would sign the document that you and I sign believing what you and I believe. And yet they are driving their churches into theological ditches. In some cases, graves blown off the road by the latest cultural derecho. Be it social justice, BLM, LGBTQ+, or science. Ah, now I got you, didn't I? The science of COVID-19 and a corrupt political system that for all, for some of us, it's like a call to exercise my God-given freedoms as an American. I appreciated one of our young staffers the other day for lunch. He made this comment. He says, I struggle with some believers' positions on these matters being more American than Christian. Ouch. Paul is in prison, but he's not demanding his rights. He's declaring God's righteousness. And if you want your thoughts, your contemplations, and your actions to be more biblical and thus more like Jesus, then get ready to jump into the deep end here, okay? The, the book of Ephesians is just like sits on a hinge. It's just there's six chapters and you get the first three chapters are doctrinal. The last three chapters are duties, like that. So you've got knowing and growing. Uh, one individual uh, has diced it up into three ways. He says the first part is, on, is the wealth 
of the Christian. Uh, the second part is the walk of the Christian. The third part is the, the warfare of the Christian. I like that too. But Ephesus itself was a city in modern-day Turkey. I've been there. I've been to the archaeological site there. It's an amazing place. But in that, those days, it was, it was the Roman capital of the East. It was incredibly wealthy, a major trade route. Half a million people lived there. And the great temple of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. It was called the Bank of Asia. And if you don't think the Apostle Paul used contemporary language when he spoke to individuals, you ought to read your Bibles again. Because if you really, if you understand how wealthy Ephesus was, not unlike our own affluent culture, the Apostle Paul in this epistle uses words like riches and inheritance and filled and lavished. Because these were terms they were familiar with. We know more about the church at Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. Founded around 52 AD, during Paul's third missionary journey, now writes to them nine or ten years later. Now, for the balance of our time, what I want you to do is go, go over to Acts chapter 18, because we're going to set the stage for this great epistle. Every church has a background. Every church has a history. Our own has a history. Sailorville Church has a history. The first church I pastored had a, uh, an amazing history. In 1900, in 1900, an eight-year-old girl wanted a Sunday school, an eight-year-old girl, and they actually started one in a train depot near Clarion, Iowa, in the area of homes. And because a bunch of Baptist, wealthy Baptist dudes who wanted to plant churches in smaller towns heard that there was a a Bible study happening in this train depot, what they did was they outfitted seven uh, railroad cars. In those days, before 1900, the railroad cars were incredibly fancy. They had chandeliers down their aisle. I mean, amazing things. They outfitted one, they outfitted seven of them into chapel cars. And they'd go off on the spurs and do evangelistic meetings. And they, because this eight-year-old wanted a Bible study, got it. They saw that as a place to stop. They pulled one spirit. By the way, there's one in the museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, if you ever want to see it. They pulled off the spur. They had evangelistic meetings, and a church was born. Really cool stuff. Ebbed and flowed. In World War II, it closed because it's a little small-town country church. Opened back up after World War II, had again ebbs and flows. In 1986, a guy by the name of Bill stood up in a prayer meeting and said, We're, we're going to have to close our doors if things don't happen. We're a dying church. And they, went, they committed themselves to prayer. And a couple that my wife and I had the joy of leading to Christ right here at Sailorville Baptist Church moved up there the next week, walked into the church, and that was the impetus for us going up there for the next dozen years. Every church has a history. This one does too. This is an amazing history, the church at Ephesus. And so before we begin unwrapping these many gifts and pulling out the gift that comes from being in Christ, the gifts rather, we want to see this morning what a church, what a church that's becoming more like Jesus looks like, better yet, was actually doing in order to become more like Jesus. So are you ready? Here we go. A church that has more people becoming more like Jesus is first and foremost a, is passionately sharing the gospel. So the Apostle Paul uh, has basically, during his church planning efforts, has popped in 
to Ephesus, and, and he brought with him a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who he had discipled. He leaves them there, and he leaves and then comes back again. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, and as they're going around this incredible city, they run into this unbelievable fireball. His name is Apollos, and we see this in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so he's from Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So this is Apollos. Apollos is lighting the place up. People are coming to Christ under his ministry. He is so powerful. He is so persuasive. In fact, so much so in Corinth, the apostle Paul would have to rebuke the Corinthians because remember, they were lining up with certain guys. I'm Paul, I'm of Apollos. So this guy is, he's amazing because he loves the gospel. He doesn't know much more, (laughs) but he's preaching that with fervency, right? I've shared the story with you when I was just a few weeks old in the Lord. I only knew one verse by heart, you know, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. And I had all my friends one night, and I held them off with that one verse for three hours. I didn't know hardly anything else. But I remember going back home, laying in bed, thinking, God, that was good stuff. You know, if I knew like two or three verses, I could really be effective. Well, that was a pulse. <clears throat> but I'll tell you this. If you want to stay out of the cultural ditches that so many of you are apt to fall into today, then preach the gospel. You say, that sounds awfully elemental. No, it's not. I have discovered that there is a common denominator that virtually everyone who falls, and I'm talking about some of you, and don't be going like this and point to people in the other aisle either. Virtually everyone who falls for conspiracies, you know, the ditch of the latest political thing, wrangling or cultural or health issues, here's the common denominator. None of them preach the gospel. They just don't. The people I know who love the gospel, preach the, and by preach, I don't mean standing here, you share Christ. They don't get hung up. They don't, they don't fall into those ditches because God gives them perspective. And you say, where, does it, where do you find this in Scripture? Where do you find preaching the gospel deepens your faith? I'm glad you asked. Philemon 6. Philemon, Paul wrote Philemon. He wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to the Ephesians. At the same time, same prison cell. Here's Philemon 6 right here. And this is the, this is the ESV. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing is, uh, that is in us for the sake of Christ. Have you ever read that? Here's how the old NIV translates this verse. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. So there you have it right from the scripture itself, that when you share Christ, you get perspective. You actually understand things better. I'm working with with a bunch of guys every Friday. Some of them are here right now. I'll throw up a picture of them. I think we have that picture. I work with these guys every Friday. Every one of those guys are brand new Christians. 
And uh, the guy in the middle, he's here today, he just gets saved. And let me tell you something. These guys think it's awesome that I'm meeting with them. They're deeper than my faith. I see what God's doing in their lives. I see what they're working through in their lives. And my theology gets sharpened as a result of sharing my faith. So, if we're going to be a church that has more people becoming more like Jesus, we must be actively sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't turn inward. And I don't care what's going on in your life. Paul was in prison. Share Jesus. Secondly, churches that are becoming more like Jesus are deliberately making disciples. You say, well, I thought that was the same thing. No, not really. There's something active here. There's a teaching element here. There's a deepening element here. Still on Apollos, okay? So he's preaching. We saw at the very end of verse 25 that he'd only been instructed in the baptism of John. We don't really... We don't really know exactly where the writer of the book of Acts is going here, but we know he's missing something because the next verse says this. He, verse 26, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him more accurately the way of God. And uh, when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is southern Greece, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had beliefs. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ, that the Christ was indeed Jesus. He was preaching the Christ. I'm not sure if he knew who, who he was. God was greatly using him. But it clearly tells us that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside to teach him more accurately, which by implication means he wasn't very accurate in some particular way, right? I mean, you remember the, uh, you remember the blind man in John chapter 9 that uh, uh, Jesus healed? He gets hauled before the religious leaders, and you remember it. I know you do, because you remember the line, the famous line that he says. They, they, they say to him, they say, hey, who is this guy? We, who is this guy that healed you? Who gave you sight on the Sabbath? Which is just... Bizarre, isn't it? The guy can see now, but he did it on the Sabbath. We know he's a sinner. And the guy says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. What I do know is I was once blind, now I... Cool line, right? But we're not going to make him our Bible teacher, right? He doesn't even know if Jesus is a sinner or not. And that's Apollos. I, I don't know where his inaccuracies were, but... He had great zeal, but needed to be taken aside for theological sharpening. This is the reason why we've entered into a brand new season here at Saverville Church with a a fresh emphasis on indoctrination of truth with men and women's group and more community groups and with the intention of better educating us so that we can become better disciples, so that we can become more like Jesus, right? Now, don't miss this expression in verse 26. Aquila and Priscilla, notice what they took Apollos aside. You see that? That's Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla personally discipled Apollos. They hosted a church in their home. They risked their lives for Paul. 
Paul loved them dearly. And in fact, according to Romans chapter 16, they were very well known, this particular dynamic husband and wife. But here's something else that's very interesting about these two. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament. Six times, three times here. The first time in verse 2, it's Aquila and Priscilla. The second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth time they're mentioned, it's Priscilla and Aquila. They're inverted. Now, why would God do that? Why does the scripture do that? Is it just happenstance that the wife is mentioned ahead of the husband after originally they're mentioned as most people would be mentioned, husband, then wife? I think there's a reason. I'm telling you this. I'm not, I, I'm not opening up a new theological directive here. It's an observation, plain and simple. I think Priscilla was probably the Bible girl. I think she understood doctrine. And notice they took him aside. It means they went in the house. This wasn't a public venue. I worked with a couple in the first church I pastored, and we always know them as Barb and Ken. We never know them as Ken and Barb. Ken was faithful, loved the Lord, but not very theologically astute, just has his doctrine down. He understands it. But she could articulate herself. She could teach that thing. And I think that there's something to this. Don't worry about discipling people when it comes to having somebody in your home. Don't worry about who's taking it over. I mean, we have to, be under, we have to understand there's a, you know, whatever. But I want you to know that there's something to this here. In fact, look, listen to what the ESV study Bible itself says as a note. This is really good. This verse provides positive support for the idea that both men and women can explain God's word to each other in private or informal settings, such as personal conversation or a small group Bible study, without violating the prohibition in the New Testament against women teaching in an assembled group of men. That's good stuff right there. Because in the end, and don't miss the point, we, I don't want you to get into a ditch here. We're talking about what a church does to make more people more like Jesus. It's passionately sharing the gospel, and it is deliberately making disciples. In the process, Apollos gets discipled. He's more accurate. He goes down to southern Greece, and he preaches there. Just the other day, I was invited to a couple's house who got my wife and I had the joy of leading to Christ right smack dab in the middle of COVID just over a year ago. They're just growing like weeds. And they have been sharing Christ with their friends. And they started a Bible study with one of their friends. And they were into the third Bible study. He calls me up. He says, hey, they're low-hanging fruit. This is a great time for you to come in. You know, be the closer. And I said, hey, you know what I do with low-hanging fruit? I pick it. That's what you need to do. So I went anyway. <laughs> but I went in as an observer and watched this couple that came to Christ last summer accurately walk through the word of God and the righteousness of God and take this other couple to saving faith in Jesus Christ one week ago. Let me tell you something. When disciples are producing disciples, you know your church is in the business of making more people more like Jesus. Amen? And that has to happen as we in, continue in this endeavor to make more people more like Jesus. And so on to a third, a third thing, a church that has more people 
becoming more like our Lord Jesus Christ, then they see people publicly identifying with Jesus. That's a normal thing. That should be happening. On to chapter 19. So this is really strange, but I kind of like it. I, I love reading this historical account, and we, it, God doesn't fill in a whole lot of lines. We got to kind of kind of understand with his help what's going on here. Verse 1 says, It happened while Apollos was was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I love this. And they said, "Uh, Who's that? So they believed. They are disciples. They have believed. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he says, well, into, then into what were you, what, what then were you baptized? Look what they said into John's baptism. Now think about this. We're talking about John the Baptist here. This is in Ephesus. Lest you think that John's, the Baptist's influence was relegated to the promised land, this is 600 miles away. That is how effective John's preaching was. And these people had believed on the one who was to come, which means they actually got saved. Well, in fact, Paul explains it. He says, oh, wow. He says, John baptized, verse 4, with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come, that is Jesus. Now watch this. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Like, whoa, well, I like that name better. We want to identify in the one that we were believing in without knowing who he was. This is so cool. No hesitancy. But to say, we were identifying with John, we're identifying with Jesus now. I love this. Today, in just several hours, down at Big Creek, we're going to baptize a bunch of people who want to identify with Jesus Christ. Amen? And guess what? We have a whole bunch more, and that many and more that are in waiting. They're in the hopper. You say, well, why don't you just baptize a whole bunch of them like so many else do? I'll tell you why. Because we believe here at Sayreville Church, in our endeavor to make more people more like Jesus, you ought to be seeing what makes a church becoming more like Jesus should experience. That is, people constantly identifying with Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we we love this thing we're going to do this afternoon. We want everybody to be there. But we also want you to know in the weeks to come, more people are going to get baptized right here in the morning. So you can constantly see the the outworking of salvation and the identifying that people who trust Jesus are willing to do by identifying with him. I was in Denver, Colorado a few years ago, and I was preaching at a conference, and they asked me to preach on evangelism discipleship. So I got there early, and I, you know, preachers do this. So we go, walk on the platform, you know, grab the pulpit, make sure it's all, everything's cool. And we're kind of, and, and the baptismal was right behind me here. It was an actual church. And I just, I don't know what possessed me to do. I just kind of walked by there and I looked in. I was just shocked. There was a, there was a couch on the bottom of the baptismal. No water in it. Couch and a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, and just then the pastor of the church walks up to me. And he leans against the baptismal. He says, well, well, I'll bet the waters of Sailorville Church are stirred constantly, aren't they? How was I supposed to respond to that? I look at him and I go, 
Well, apparently more than these. He asked for it. What in the world? Listen, if your church never sees individuals come to Jesus and identify him in baptism, you're not a church. You can call yourself a fellowship. You can call yourself a Bible study. You can call yourself a seminary. Call yourself a book club for all I care. But don't call yourself a church because you're not one. A church that's endeavoring to see more people become more like Jesus sees people come to know Jesus and unashamedly, publicly identify with the name which is above every name. And some of you have believed Some of you in here this morning, you have believed, or you're watching online, you have believed, you've repented in your heart, you've placed your faith in Jesus, but you've never identified with him. Jesus said, he who confesses me before men, that's the one I confess before my Father who is in heaven. And the church that has more people becoming more like Jesus sees them publicly identifying with the name above all names, right? Fourthly, they are intentionally evangelizing the world. We're told in chapter 19 and verse 10, go all the way down there, this continued, Paul's in the synagogue, people are getting saved. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amazing. Again, Asia is like modern-day Turkey. Think that way. I mean, It's enough for the Engage Network to cover greater Des Moines. But out of this great city of Ephesus goes the gospel. People come to Christ. They're identifying with them. Churches are being started. Intentionally evangelizing. We do it here. We send out missionaries around the world. That's what makes a church that's endeavors to see more people become more like Jesus does. Now, fifthly and finally, they are a church endeavoring to see more people become more like Jesus is actively engaging in warfare. Now, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, you know that the last chapter is totally given over to Christian warfare. You know, put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the wicked one, right? Where did Paul get this, this teaching on Christian warfare What was the thought behind it? Well, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the word of God, but he used the human mechanism. What what was going on there? I think it might have been what happened in Ephesus. Look with me beginning in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary things at the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were tucked in, that that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is what the charlatans today, they based what they do off this verse. It's cra- There's no, we're not told to do this, but you can't deny that this, something crazy is happening here. God's working powerfully. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you in Jesus. That's the way they would talk, I'm sure whom Paul proclaims, bad idea, by the way. Seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva were doing this. But the Spirit answered them. This is a scene right out of The Exorcist. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. 
But who are you? Oh, man, bad things are happening now. The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them. They ran out naked and wounded. <laughs> Don't mess with Jesus' name, amen? Don't mess with his name. Identifying with Jesus is serious business. Messing with his name is satanic business. And there are those in our culture who would be better off identifying with the sons of Sceva by attempting to copy God's power. They've not submitted to God's authority. And I don't care what you're doing. You can crank up the music, dress up the show, hype up the crowd, lift up the psychology, all in your efforts to pull up God's power. And the only thing you're going to get is a more sinister power. All because they refuse to lift up God's son. And that's where the real power comes from. Amen. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of Christ. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Why? So that your faith might not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Unless you think this fiasco that took place with the sons of Sceva, you know, just killed all the gospel momentum. Just the opposite. Look at verse 17. This is crazy stuff. Then, I'm sorry, lost my place here. I got so excited I flipped the page. There we go. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many, verse 18, of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Why? Because if anyone's in Christ, they're what? New creation. All things are what? All things have become what? You see it right here, right in front of you. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. If we're going to be a church becoming more like Jesus, then we have to be willing to put up a fight. We are, to be, we are to fight, but some of you are rolling up your sleeves and you're fighting the wrong fight. Paul says, fight the good fight, which by implication means there is a bad fight. And some of you are fighting bad fights. Fight the good fight of faith. And out of this, by the way, we don't have the time, a riot starts, but that's another story another time. Because the gospel upsets people. It upsets the economy here. But out of it, a mighty church is born. The church at Ephesus. And I said, we know more about Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. And 30 years later, the Lord Jesus himself writes to them. And he says to them, You've got so many good things going for you. You're doctrinally sound. You kick out people that shouldn't be in your midst. But you're missing one thing. And it's so important that if you don't get it back, I'm going to take away your witness. And that one thing was your first love in me. In 2008, I led a tour to Ephesus, we walked through the streets of this magnificent archaeological site. 
We saw the, you know, the, uh, the Tyrannus, that school of Tyrannus you're looking at right there. That's where Paul taught. Amazing stuff. But you want to know what we didn't see? We didn't see a church, not there or anywhere around it, because the church lost its witness and is no more. You see, you never really fall out of love. You just fall in love with something else. And my greatest concern for the church at Sailorville is that you would fall in love with things that don't count. If you've lost your first love, get it back. Some of you have never, never experienced what it means to be in Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossians, same time as he wrote to the Ephesians. He said, for those who knew Jesus, he said, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the safest place to be. And it's the secret to becoming more like Jesus. Some of you don't know Jesus. And the evidence is there in your life with all of your pursuits that have nothing to do with the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel so that the wrath of God that currently resides on you might be taken away. You'll find yourself safe in Christ. You'll have eternal life. And if you do know him, are you sharing him? Are you growing in your walk with God? Have you identified with Jesus? If you've been saved and you've never been baptized, would you determine right now, right in this room or watching online, wherever you're at, God, I will identify with you. I will identify proudly with Jesus. Would you do that? As we continue in our efforts to see the gospel spread around the world, fighting the good fight all the way. Amen? God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this mighty church that was mighty for a time that has given us some amazing teaching that we look forward to get into. All these wonderful things we have in Christ, gifts that come out of the ultimate gift. But I do pray, Lord, that you would speak to every one of our hearts, to those in this room watching online who aren't in Christ. If that's you, dear friend, repent and believe the gospel right now from your heart. That you would give us a spirit of, of, of a palace, to, zealous in our efforts to spread the, the gospel and willing to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted with all long-suffering and doctrine on our way to becoming disciples of Jesus, identifying with him. And some need to identify him in baptism, having been saved. Some just need to keep identifying with him. In all our ways, acknowledge him, your word says, Lord. <laughs> and then you direct our paths. We give all the glory to you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand.